Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dope Shit My Therapist Says, a therapeutic wellness podcast hosted by Ryan Gaddy and Lauren Fractor. We are two millennial therapists who enjoy having authentic conversations with real people who share their experiences and passions with a mental health twist. Conversations that inspire discovery of self, insight into deeper spirituality, and alternative ways to support mental health and wellness. As a reminder, this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. All topics discussed on the podcast are from the viewpoint of our guests and their personal experiences. Information shared on the podcast is not a replacement for therapy, therapeutic advice, or medical treatment. On today's episode, we have Lisa Kiefhofer. She has a master's in social work, and she's a social worker turned grief and empathy activist, using her personal and professional experiences with grief and loss over the past 20 years to create a grief smart culture. As founder of Reimagining Grief and host of podcast Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, she is transforming and expanding our understanding of grief and changing the lives of individuals, communities, and organizations along the way. Lisa uses her warmth, vulnerability, humor, and therapeutic skills in her work as an inspirational speaker, writer, grief guide, and educator. She even created a unique line of empathy cards to help us all find language when we're at a loss for words. You can learn more by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com. In this episode, we covered a bunch of different topics on grief, including collective grief, how our body processes grief, and why our society is grief illiterate and our own grief beliefs. Due to the heavy content and nature of the topic, please be advised. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. We're both really excited to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm really excited to be on the show and dish with a therapist. Yeah, we actually have not had that many episodes. Have we had any episodes, Lauren, with another therapist? A one, I think. Uh, we, Yeah, we've only had one, but we're really excited to talk to another person in the field. Yeah, I'm like you, really excited. Yeah, I feel like you get us. You understand where we're coming from. Um, and yeah, um, Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, and what you do. Well, thanks for having me again. I, I really appreciate it. I love nerding out with other therapy types. So this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, my name is Lisa Kiefhofer. I'm originally from the Midwest, but I've been calling Austin, Texas home for the last seven years. Um, and I spent a career as a social worker and as a narrative therapist in a lot of nonprofit spaces, foster care, adoption, family services, public housing. Um, and in 2011, um, my husband, um, Eric Kiefhofer, died from a undiagnosed massive brain tumor when I was just 40 and he was 44 and our daughter was seven. And that obviously was an incredibly pivotal moment in my life. Um, part of the reason we ended up um, here in Austin, Texas. And um, over the course of those intervening years, after then losing a close, another person in my life, a close friend, um, and doing different work in the nonprofit space, I started to really recognize the ways grief, we are so grief illiterate and grief deficit in our culture. And I've done a lot of work in public speaking and obviously creating programs and services for my career. And I, about two years ago, a sort of bell went off in my head, which was like, I can't have had all these 
personal experiences of grief and all these professional experiences with grief, because I'd love to get your insight, you too. But when I look back at all the people I did therapy with, so much underlying of whatever their presenting problem was unacknowledged, unprocessed grief. So about two years ago, I sort of, and after a health scare of my own, had a kind of you know, wake up moment and was like, I can't have had all this experience. So at that time I launched my podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch and my company Reimagining Grief. And I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. And we can talk more about how I do that, but it means that I, I, I sort of call myself a grief, um, grief and empathy activist is the latest sort of name I've been using. Um, I do want to say that in my role doing grief work now, I don't carry a licensure. I was I was have a master's in social work and was a clinical licensed therapist for a long time, but I was very conscious about not retaining my licensure because I wanted to show up in my full self and really work with grief in ways that not to dis licensure, but for me it didn't that really didn't align. So I don't call myself a therapist anymore um, because of that. Yeah, I actually want to go back and touch a little bit on that portion of it just to hear yeah. your your thoughts and, you know, have our listeners understand kind of the red tape and things that happen for us as therapists and what gets in the way of us really showing up fully authentically, maybe as ourselves in therapy. Um, but I do want to just kind of share that this past week for me, grief has been the theme of everything. I just took, I don't know if you saw, Pessy had a two-day free grief summit that they did um, with some huge names like uh, uh, David Kessler, Kessler. Uh, mm-hmm. was on it and some really great other people. And so that that's just kind of been the theme of my week. It's been like lots, lots of grief yeah. and that's really brought up more thoughts for me on, on my grief. I just had a huge loss last year where in the same weekend, my dog who was only three years old died suddenly. And my best friend, um, her ex-husband murder, suicide himself and their two-year-old son. So Mm. that's been a huge theme plus the pandemic. So I think this, this, uh, conversation couldn't have come at a better time for me, for us and our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm holding you and your friends and your pup in my heart. I had to say goodbye to my rescue dog who was only seven last summer and he rescued us really after my husband died. So um, I think pet loss, we're pretty grief illiterate in all kinds of losses, every loss beyond death loss, which there's a lot of, which I think we're all recognizing now in the pandemic. But I think pet loss is um, one that's really um not taken as seriously as it really should be. And so I really, I want to honor that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, absolutely. She was my first personal dog and it happened out of the blue very suddenly. And at the exact same time as my friend's loss. So, Ooh, like it it really opened my eyes too. Yeah. It really opened my own eyes on how I process grief and then just learning how to be present differently for other people who are grieving. And I think that training this week really, really taught me a lot as well. But why do you think that Western culture specifically is so grief illiterate? Yeah. Well, you know, let's, I'm going to put a pin in something I'd love to come back to, which is if we don't get good at 
honoring our own grief and holding space and bearing witness for our own grief, we're never going to be good at showing up for other people. So in some ways, I, the work that I do is both helping grievers and grief supporters, because I think you can't do one without the other. As far as why I think Western culture, you know, sort of writ large, not that there aren't good people who can do grief well, or really honor the trueness of grief well, but I think to be honest, it really is kind of from our roots. We're very, you know, I mean, let's be real, white supremacist, capitalist, colonialist. It's very much about doing, conquering, upward trajectory, movement, capitalism, certainly capitalism and actual grief wellness are pretty much in contradiction on the surface. Although I would argue, I go into companies to say you can actually do them well and that benefits both the employee and the company. But I think when we think about sort of the in, the systems that built this country and, West, and we're talking about the US, I'm sure you have listeners from all over, but when we think about the West, all of those systems have really um, foundational beliefs underneath them that are very individualistic and very capitalistic, very, I mean, we are the pull yourselves up by the bootstraps nation here in the US. I mean, of course that's a fallacy, but that's what we tell ourselves. And so when you think about, and we're about productivity and improvement, getting over things, I mean, toxic positivity and things be happy. We're also a very isolated country, especially as we, you know, enter this, you know, the 21st century, when we think about um, grief having maybe been in other times, you know, we grieve in community. Well, we we have loss in community, but we don't grieve in community. That's not part of our culture. Again, I'm saying this sort of writ large. Of course, there are small pockets. If you're in your family systems or your religious community or your neighborhood, you might have sort of pockets, but like writ large, we don't do that well. And I think that has to do with all of our underlying um, belief systems that, that infiltrate the grief beliefs that we have. That's what I call them, sort of grief beliefs. And most of us don't actually know what our own grief beliefs are until we're confronted it actually from my training as a narrative therapist and narrative roots every episode for my podcast i ask each guest what were your earliest memories of grief as a child and how did the adults in your life model either explicitly or implicitly what grief should or shouldn't look like and then how did that serve you or not when you faced grief in your adult life because most of my guests are coming to tell a story and it's just an amazing exploration for people to sort of unpack that they had these beliefs you're supposed to get over you're supposed to not cry you're supposed to angry isn't okay you can't feel relief Um, you can't grieve for something that's not a death loss you know all the kind of things that we learn so we learn at the systems level at the community level even in our family systems Um, and we're kind of set up to be grief illiterate in this country, unfortunately, which is why I use every platform I can to sort of change the change the narrative. You answered so many of our questions that we had for you in just that one um, moment. But I mean, I, I just wanted to say you're right. I mean, you couldn't have said it any better just based on, you know, living in the United States. We do want to eventually touch on, you know, this past year and everything that we've yes. been through, but we'll we'll get back to that a little later. Um, but it's so interesting when you were talking, I was just thinking about my my mom and how, you know, growing up, she was really good about me letting out my feelings, crying, and yet she hasn't faced her own grief because her father died at a young age in a very traumatic accident 
um, in, you know, LA and she's never faced it. Yeah. Yeah. But she was able to hold the space for me. But Which she is never, pretty unique. Yeah. That's pretty it, unique. It, it is very unique. I mean, I'm very blessed. And, you know, my mom listens to the podcast. Hi, mom. Hi, mom. Um, <laughs> but really, I mean, it's just so interesting because a lot of what we go through really comes down to cultural um, and, and really family systems. family systems. And what you're talking about is you're you are fortunate and unique. And I'd be curious in another conversation to maybe dive deeper into sort of what she was doing and how she was able to do that because much of what we actually learn, and this is true for things beyond grief beliefs, this is for kind of all of our beliefs and practices, we learn in ways much more from the implicit behaviors um, and sort of what didn't get said or what didn't get done than we do as much from, you know, you might think like, well, nobody in my family ever told me to get over it or to stop crying. People were understanding. But if they changed the subject every time you brought it up, if they started to like, you know, leave the room when you came in, if they tried to talk about happy things every time you tried to talk about sad things, if they discouraged you from expressing anger, which is a very, you know, uh, normative response to loss, um, then, then we start to sort of incorporate that. It's just like they always say sort of in the corporate space. It's like people do what people do, not what the rules are, not what's said. And the same thing happens in our family systems. And, um, and so often we learn that. And, it's, and sometimes we are able as parents, I mean, I'll say this of a now 17-year-old, is we are able to offer things that we didn't have, but we can do it so much more richly and so much more authentically if we can actually experience offering those same things to ourselves. Yeah, and when you, you were talking I, about like going back to like your earliest experiences with grief or just in no, loss in general in your family yep. system, I mean, I like instantly my like brain was filled with like the first person that I knew that died. And, and yeah. I don't even remember my family's reaction. I didn't go to that person's funeral. I didn't, you know, there wasn't really much conversation about that or any show of emotion right. about that person. Um, and it's, which it's could curious. mean your parents had the beliefs that, you know, we don't burden, it's happened a lot. Like we don't burden kids with grief and it's too much for them to handle. Mm -hmm. It might also be there might've been shame around whatever that loss was, you know, sort of stigma. And I'm glad you brought up that like grief and loss. Like we, of course, grieve things that are beyond death loss. And so sometimes the answer to those questions, to the question of what's your earliest memory of grief can be something non-death loss related. I actually it was very interesting. My most recent guest on my podcast is a poet, um, Persian heritage, British born. And she, when I asked her that question, even though she's lost her father and her brother in the intervening years, she talked about the grief. She was very much connected with nature from a very young age. And she, there was a young cherry tree in her yard. And she remembered a family gathering friends and a guy, somebody visiting for the party basically snapped the tree and basically killed the tree. She doesn't really remember the motivation. And she just remembers a deep sense of loss and grief, but also the adults in her life sort of being like, it's a tree. Right. You know? So I think we have to really think about um, really expanding 
how we think about grief and loss. And as I said in the intro, when I look back over the course of all of the folks that I've worked with, of course, obvious there's grief and loss in foster care and adoption. But when I think about all of the different people that I've seen over the years who've been diagnosed with you know, bipolar disorder and trichotillomania and anxiety and every other thing, there's always been some underlying unacknowledged grief. And what happens is our nervous system is screaming at us like you lost something, this is very stressful, but the rest of our intellect and our culture is saying, move on, buck up, suck it up. You didn't know them. It wasn't really that big of a deal, et cetera. And so this work that I'm doing is trying to get at many levels to really expand our, not to make us be all, you know, some people ask me all the time, like, isn't it so hard or depressing to work in grief? And I think actually it's one of the most joyous things in my life because I think we get to actually honor our humanity, our deep connection. We get to know ourselves in ways. I'm more joyful and find more amazement in life now than I did before. And it's because I really unpack my own grief in all the different manifestations and because I hope, you know, other people do that too. I'd love if I can just interject, because this might, if we go to the conversation around um, the pandemic and all the different kinds of losses, one of the things I like to share with people is sort of my definition of grief. And people who know me won't be surprised to know it's very metaphorical and narrative because that's what I do. That's how I do. Um, and the way I approach it is our lives are built by the stories we tell of our experiences. So we have millions of experiences, billions of experiences in our lives. And actually our identity and our life is told when we sort of tell the stories of those life experiences. And so a death loss or a catastrophic maybe injury or let's say a global pandemic, it could be an end of a relationship, it could be you know, the end of a career or an ability or even a dream is sort of akin to the shredding of the manuscript of our lives. And then it's handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live into the story of our lives. And the work of grief, which is not something you come to an end of, is the sort of act or work of rewriting and living into the story of our lives. And I hope that metaphor resonates for you and for your listeners, because I think it helps us sort of zoom out or zoom back to understand why we feel things akin to grief, akin to the stress response over things that we haven't been approved to feel grief over. Yes. That, that was, that was so beautiful. I almost started crying. I don't know what came over me. Um, do you see grief and loss as one and the same or two separate? That's a good question. Well, I mean, I'm touched that it touched you. And I think part of why it does is I think part of my part of me sharing that definition often and this work often is I can see when I'm when people respond to my Instagram or to to the one on one work I do or to my empathy cards or whatever. It's like it gives us a kind of permission to feel the things we were already feeling and not allowing ourselves to feel. So I think that's what happens there. I think loss in some ways is separate from grief. I think grief is this sort of reaction to loss. Grief is how we make meaning of loss. It's actually, in some ways, grief is the sort of 
actually instinctual, not planned. Grief is the just very primal embodied response to loss. Mourning then is sort of how we behave out to the external world, our practices, our rituals, our communications. But in some ways, grief is sort of a, a visceral reaction to loss, which is why it, we can you know, try to apply logic. Well, why am I grieving so-and-so? I didn't know them that well, or the relationship was over or whatever, but it's, it comes from deep roots. And then it manifests in all kinds of ways. By the way, grief often mis mistakenly gets sort of allotted to the emotional domain of our lives, but grief is cognitive. I mean, we could talk about grief brain and all the other effects to the body. It affects your immune system, all of your responses. It's financial. It can be existential and spiritually, you know, triggering. Um, it can, there's a lot of secondary losses that come with the first loss, which we can talk about too, if you'd like. So I think grief is sort of, is the beginning of this sort of natural or a sort of instinctual response. And then the work of grief or our grief experience is how we sort of rewrite and make meaning and, and develop the sort of new sense of self because we're never going back. One of the most harmful things that people say is I can't wait. And we say it to ourselves, by the way, we are, we are our own harm. We cause our own harm with our own grief beliefs. Other people do it to us, which is why I have a whole line of empathy cards about the stupid shit people say to you and that they shouldn't say it. But so I think what happens is we sort of harm ourselves. I shouldn't feel this way. I, I, I don't want to believe this thing. I'm not allowed to, I, I need to get over it, whatever our own grief beliefs are. And that really gets in our way. So the rewriting, and one of those expressions is I can't wait to get back to my old self. I've said it myself after my husband died and I went back to work right away as the director of clinical services at a nonprofit because work systems are problematic. There are lovely people, but work systems are problematic. And I remember th saying that, like, I wish I could just be myself again. I just want to go back to myself. And the clients that I work with all the time are talking about that. And, and I would say the same thing is true about the pandemic. We're not ever going back. And with the pandemic, I would say that's not actually a bad thing. With the, at the interpersonal level, I, can, I, I feel and hold in my heart how terrifying and hard that is for people because they want to be that old version of themselves. The good news, bad news is there's going to be a lovely version of you. It's just, and it's a lot of it is going to be based on who you've been. We don't shed everything that we were, but we don't go through a significant loss and grieve without becoming a different version of ourselves. And like I said, though, I would do anything to bring my husband back. It'll be 10 years this August. In some ways, doing the work of grief, I'm more empathetic. I'm, although I like to think I was a, you know, compassionate, empathetic person before, but I find more joy in daily life. I have deeper friendships. I have more wisdom. You know, there's a lot about this version of Lisa that is beautiful. And there's a lot of old Lisa in here too. And we're not going back. And so part of the I think, I hope the gift that I offer people, even though I know it's hard to hear sometimes is the permission that you don't have to go back and to sort of have faith that in with the, whatever support you seek, you will be guided into a new beautiful version of yourself.
I mean, if you guys think about all the people, you know, who are the most compassionate, empathetic people in your lives, and maybe your listeners can think about this too. They're usually the people who have gone through some stuff. And it's not just going through stuff, by the way, I would say it's like a lot of people are like, well, I've been through some stuff, but if you don't actually do the work, you're just hard, brittled edge. You're just walking, you know, probably a walking trauma wound. And I have trauma history long before my husband died. So I've been doing self-healing work and work for a long time. So it's not just having bad stuff happen. It's the people you know in your life who had bad stuff happen and did something with it. I don't necessarily mean opening a charity or that kind of do something with it, which I did. I actually moved to Austin and founded a nonprofit to help other cancer patients, which is what my husband died of. But it's more the doing of the work, honoring their sitting and holding space and bearing witness to your own pain, you know, and honoring the, whatever the pain, the growth, you know, the closure, not the closure. I hate that word, but the sort of just honoring all that is in your grief, those people, those, you know, those magic people in your life who you kind of get in contact with and you're like, Ooh, they're like special. They have like, I don't know, stars (laughs) around them. (laughs) I think those are the people that did the work. Yeah. I was um, thinking of the visual that I think in the trainings, I think David Kessler had done, and it was a jar of different sizes and the word grief inside of it in a little bubble. Yeah. And he was kind of saying exactly what you're saying essentially is that grief does not shrink. It doesn't get smaller. It doesn't go away, but we become bigger around the grief and we create more space so that we can fill that space with the hope. Again, we can fill that space with just becoming a different version of ourselves. So I guess my question to you is, how do you recommend people lean into that process of grief? Because, because it's so difficult for us as humans and we talked about Western culture to step into our grief and not try to shove it down and ignore it, that those people like you're talking about are the ones that have leaned into the grief, have gone through that process, however messy it is and come out the other side as that bigger, that bigger jar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of answers to that question. So I'll try to be succinct and think about kind of where to start and where to go. I mean, one of the things I think you brought up this word, I just want to mirror back to you. I think it's so important is one is we have to let go. We have to accept and embrace messy, which is really hard for some of us to do. Most of us, frankly, you know, we're like, where's the top 10 checklist, you know, like where's the upward, you know, line in the graph that just gets us from A to B. And we have to think about our grief journey as a little more like, you know, the cloud around pig pen, you know, and Charlie Brown, it looks a little, you know, messier than that. I do really honestly think like have somebody in your life or put the imagery up in your room, in your world to remind yourself, because one of the things is that we, when we do the work of grief, we kind of, you know, I can, I'll bring in 12,000 metaphors to Sunday today, but we kind of take two steps forward. One, sometimes we stumble three steps back. And then, and if you only look zoomed in, maybe like this jar analogy at like, oh, I went three days without crying and now I've cried for a week. I must be backwards. This is, this is all this toxic positivity, Western culture garbage that we have, right? And that everything should be linear and an upward momentum. So one sort of metaphor I want to invite people to think about is like to zoom out from your own grief. So if it's been not early grief, acute early grief, you're just try to get to sleep, try to eat, try to have, you know, nutrition and say no to everything you can say no to like 
early grief is a whole nother, that's a whole nother work. But when you start to move from there and we can talk about sort of getting one-on-one or group support, I definitely am a believer in meditation and somatic work, um, nutrition, sleep, those kind of things. We can talk about that. But while you're doing any of those sort of interventions to help you, because you've never been here before. So how would you know how to do it? Not only do we have, we hurt ourselves by thinking it should be neat and not messy. We hurt ourselves by thinking I should know how to do this. And so my message to anybody listening to this, who's grieving one or more losses right now, and by the way, new grief brings up old grief. So you're welcome. Sorry. But is that we have to honor not just the messiness of it, um, but that we're going to evolve over time and that it's going to look different over time. And we've never done this before. I use this analogy a lot that um, we're basically, you know, traveling without GPS or without a map. And you would never think, well, I should just inherently intuitively know how to drive from Texas to California. You would not think that you'd be like, I need a GPS system. I need a map. I'm going to have to probably stop and ask for directions. Sometimes I'm going to need to do things. And so the one thing I would say to people sort of, on the whole, when you think about your grief is how can you honor the fact that you've never been here before? So even if you grieved a different loss, you've never grieved this loss as this version of yourself. Um, And it's hard, especially for us therapists, I'm looking at you too. It's really hard for us to accept help, even though we offer it to other people. And I was the clinical director of a family services at the time that my husband died. And it really was like, I had to really sort of set whatever assumptions and egos aside of that, I should know how to do this, get my own support and my own help. So allow it to be messy, ask for help and don't, and let go of the assumptions. Um, I call them the shoulds of grief, the shoulds that we should know how to do this. I think that's really important. And then the things I touched on, I think are important. Everybody needs help from somebody else. Find somebody who can hold space and bear witness, not fix things for you, but who can really just honor you and hold you just as you are. And unfortunately, sometimes that's not often, I would say, is not our family and friends. Because our family and friends are, A, they may have faced the same loss, but B, they want to fix us. They can't help it because they haven't probably sat with their own pain. So they're like, they want to fix us. And really in early grief, especially, we just need people to just honor us exactly as we are. So sometimes that means finding a one-on-one support person, a therapist or a grief guide. That's the work that I do, finding a group. Um, Whatever that is, be okay with the fact that you need somebody to hold space um, for you. And um, I, again, I think our body holds, I mean, you guys, we can nerd out on all this trauma, right? The body keeps score. Our body holds our emotional being. These are not disconnect. Our head and the rest of our body are not disconnected, even though we like to think that they are. So meditation, stretching, yoga, anything that allows you to really honor and sit with your body. I think talk therapy or talk support without doing some kind of embodied work or without doing like sleep and attending to your sleep and nutrition is it's sort of like pouring water into a bucket with a hole in the bottom. It's like, it helps, but not as much as really attending to your whole self. We grieve with our 
whole selves. So your grief support needs to be for your whole self. That was a lot. I'm going to pause there. Sorry about that, ladies. No, that was wonderful. You brought up some really amazing points and they seem like really um, one of the questions we were going to ask you was attainable ways um, for people to identify and acknowledge grief. I feel like you answered that in that question. Um, I wanted to also say that, yes, it's really hard being in our field to accept help. And um, I, I'm stubborn with it. And yet I'm preaching to everybody, you know, you need to get help. You need to get support in a support system. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't need you to help me. But it's true. We really all need somebody. Um, but what I was thinking about was uh, a year and a half ago, there was a school shooting at mm -hmm. a local high school. And I worked at another high school that was a few miles away. And I had to do grief counseling for mm -hmm. an entire day to uh, victims of those who were um, lost. And I've never felt anything like it. And uh, when you were talking, I was thinking about my own experience and how I had the worst headache of my entire life for two days because I was taking in everything that was around me, mm -hmm. holding it. And then finally I was able to release it you know, with the support of uh, my supervisor and other colleagues that were also doing mm -hmm. grief counseling. But it's amazing because in that moment when I was helping, I didn't know what to do. They just threw me in and I had to use, you know, my instinct and intuition and training from all these yeah. years. But the best, um, the best, I say advice, even though it wasn't advice, but the, in the best, the best thing in that moment for the teenagers and their families mm -hmm wasn't talking. It was drawing. It was making something with their hands. It was doing something as a distraction that then brought up natural conversations about grief, loss that then yeah. turned into jokes and laughter about, oh, remember when he did this, remember when she did this. And it yeah. was a natural progression over the course of a couple hours. Yeah. And I just saw it happen in front of me. So I wanted to uh, just acknowledge that moment. Um, I, I really was just taking in everything you said yeah. and it brought me back to that place. And when I was thrown into it too, I would say if I can, I, I, to piggyback on that, first of all, you know, oh, my heart is with the families um, of that experience and you all as the care providers, but I have a motto, show up, shut up and listen. That's my advice for grief support. If you want to know how to support somebody, show up, shut up and listen. If you think about the times when you've been in pain and you've experienced, it could be what you labeled grief, or even if you didn't label it grief, it could be loss of a job, loss of a relationship, just disappointment. You didn't get into college, whatever your thing was, whatever it was. When you think about the person in your life who made you feel good in that moment, they probably weren't correcting you. They probably weren't trying to fix things for you. They probably weren't even doing things for you. Although some practical help is great. Like I have a lot of advice about practical help you can do. But it was probably the people who just sat with you. I mean, my friends, the ones who could come and literally sit on the couch or sometimes the floor because I couldn't even deal with being on the couch and I was in tears on the floor. And they came and lay down on the floor, sat down on the floor next to me and either held me or just sat next to me and mirrored what I was going through. That was better than any so you don't have to know what to say, I guess, is my point. And sometimes, and especially with kids who actually don't use language, they use, you know, they're much more sort of visceral and embodied in their expression, but don't let not knowing what to say, keep you from showing up because really it's about your energy. It's about your presence. 
you are basically a container for that person. That's what you're doing. You are literally picture yourself as a container holding them. And that's, and that sounds like a lot of what you did. And to your point, Lauren, by the way, don't be afraid to ask, tell, ask people to share their stories or tell you a favorite memory. We have such a myth in this country that like, oh, if I bring up their name, um, it's going to upset them. We're thinking about them. Trust me. So you not bringing up their name just makes us think you've forgotten about them or that you're uncomfortable and you don't want to hear about them. I love it when people I've met in the intervening years who, of course, didn't know Eric, ask me like about him. Tell me a favorite memory. Tell me a favorite quality. It's like the best thing. It's how I, I feel we have a moral obligation to carry those we've lost forward in some ways. And part of how we do that is in telling of stories. I think that's probably one of the hardest things that I struggle with when helping other people or being there for other people that I'm trying to unlearn is that like to not bring, bring it up right? Like this fear of triggering somebody's grief of like being rude or, you know, I think like you're saying that, that if I bring this person up, if I ask these questions, am I making it about me because I'm curious versus am I making, giving them that container yeah. of space? So, yeah. and you're right, that, that shut up process. Like when I lost my dog and my friend's baby the same weekend, um, my one friend that was there for me, like it was, picking me up every day, taking me to eat food, just sitting yeah. with me in silence, allowing me to just text or call and just ball on the phone for hours. Like that yeah. was, that was the person that got me through it. Was that yeah. it was never, no, it was okay. Whatever you need. And it, it, it helped more than yeah. anything. Because the truth is we have to go through the pain. There's no shortcuts. There is no glamor magazine, top five list, top 10 ways to you know, escape the pain. We can't get liposuction our way out of the pain. So what we need, because grief is so isolating, right? We, we sort of, our, our biological craving, our craving as humans is, you know, belonging, right? And a grief, a loss experience has us sort of both detached from our own sense of who we are. We've lost our own identity. And sometimes, of course, we've lost a relationship. And so when we show up and hold space and act as a container for people, we allow them to sort of experience that pain, which has to be experienced. There's no bypass for it. But we also begin to sort of show the nervous system of that griever, that person, you're not actually alone. And that sort of tiptoe towards belonging again, towards sort of community, being in community is, is the healing work, which is sort of good news for the people who want to show up and offer grief support. Like you don't have to have the right thing to say, you have to show up and be the container. I will say it depends on your relationship. Don't be a nosy Nelly. If you're just don't know that person very well. And you're like, Oh, tell me all about them. And what was the, you know, like you want to make sure it's based on the relationship you have with the person and you can do it in a, in a sort of inquiry, sort of curiosity kind of way. Like I've been thinking about, I'm just gonna say Eric, cause I was like, I've been thinking about Eric and I just wanted to let you know, if you ever want to share a story or a favorite memory about him, I'd love to hear. And I also respect if you don't want to, but I just wanted to let you know, I've been, I've been wondering. So it sort of gives them a permission to be like, not now, girl, I cannot open that. Or thank you for asking. I want to tell you about him. Exactly. I feel like, you know, just being here with you today, I'm, I'm learning so much and also unlearning so much, which is really important because it's really hard with grief because 
like just to think of, you know, someone not being here anymore, they don't exist anymore, yeah. but they do still exist. Their soul yeah. exists. Their, their memories exist. Uh, the memories you made with them exist. And then we, we just shut the door on that. And why, you why? know, we never should do that. And yet we've been conditioned to do that. And so, you know, I hope our listeners are, you know, really taking in everything that Lisa's saying today about don't shut that door yeah. and keep it alive, but be respectful. And, you know, there's ways to do both. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, something that we talked about a lot in that grief training that I was in was just some surprising symptoms, mental health symptoms, or just experiences that people have when dealing with grief that maybe they didn't really realize was a part of the grief process. Um, Would you be able to touch on like your thoughts on that or your experiences? Yeah. I mean, I definitely experienced all of them. And because I didn't know that grief wasn't just the thoughts and emotions that you have from the neck up, I remember not really feeling like, you know, like something was wrong with me as opposed to just, that was my body grieving my, your, our body's grief. So I don't know what the, what the speakers said at that, but the way I try to talk to people when I go in and do workshops and trainings with individuals, or I'm, I'm trying to bring grief awareness to company culture. So I do a lot of workshops and companies too. And one of the things I remind people is that our response to loss, particularly, you know, a death loss or something that's really, you know, close to our hearts is it basically triggers the stress response in our body. And if you know anything, you know, basic fundamental ideas around this fight, flight, or freeze response means that because it, we perceive this loss as basically danger to the system and our body is treating it like a saber tooth tiger from back in the day, you know, right. Or a hot stove or, you know, a car coming at us in traffic. And so for very good reasons, when our body is in stress response, our long-term memory goes offline because, you know, you don't really need that to run from the saber-toothed tiger. Um, Our sort of executive functioning or our intellectual brain goes offline. Um, Again, these are all things we don't need anymore. We have a lot of adrenaline and things pumping into our bodies, which keeps us, again, alert and awake makes it really difficult to sleep. So if you think about right there, I've just named three things. So now we're not able to sleep. Um, We can't recall things. So there's, we often talk about grief brain or widow brain or grief fog. That's a very real thing and can last a long time again, because in a way, if you think about it, it's like our body is, is basically in shock and we're in response. We're fighting or fleeing something. Also, our di- we can have digestive issues sometimes people notice because again, your sort of digestive system goes offline when you're in a stress response. And if you don't actually get support, do this embodied work, other things, your body is, even though maybe it happened a week ago or two weeks ago or two months ago, your body is still treating it like the threat is still there. So you don't want to have to stop and go pee when you're running from the saber tooth tiger. I'm going to stick with that analogy there, right? So your body kind of shuts down. Our immune system can be compromised. So you might be getting sick more often. Again, then when you don't sleep because you have the adrenaline, then you're tired and fatigued, which then makes you achy and sore. So then some of those things are kind of self-fulfilling cycles. So I think some of the most um, common and um not well known, but I really want to make sure that we talk about it is if you are forgetful, if you cannot remember to things that you used to be able to remember, if you can't process multitask steps, 
sort of complex problem solving. If you're having digestive, if you're quote unquote tired for no reason, I want to just bust through all that math. You're not tired for no reason. You're not forgetting for no reason. And the good news is this isn't a permanent state of who you are. What it is, is an, it is a call from your body to say, hey, I need help. I need help discharging the stress in, in moments, in doses, so that I can rest and restore, you know, rest and digest. Those are the kind of that right part of our body. Um, but to be honest, grief brain, sort of the fog can last upwards of a year for people. It can, you know, it can last a while. Again, that isn't meant to be discouraging. What it does, it tells both the griever and the grief supporters, okay, if this is our new normal for now, what do we need to do to it to just, you know, discharge the stress and care for our bodies so that we can grow? So that means sticky notes and phones, phone calendars, and anything you can put on automatic payment, anything is your best friend when you're grieving. And actually, one of the things, if you're very close to the person that's grieving, if you want to, if you're a doer and you want to do something for the griever, if they're not already, help them sign up for automatic payment withdrawals or also do some practical things like come take out their garbage and recycling for them every week or sign up, you know, whatever. But help them, you know, and for yourself, if you're the griever for yourself, sticky notes were my friends everywhere. I told so many people in my life different important milestones. I was like, can you help me remember things? Um, so I think really, if we know, we know our body is tired all the time. If we know we're going to need rest more because our body has just gone through this, is continuing to go through this pummeling, the stress response, then even if you can reframe for yourself, I'm just so tired all the time. I don't know why there's something wrong with me. If you can say, my body is carrying so much. It's been working so hard for me. You know what I need to do for my body? I need to let it rest. That's what I'm doing. Just that reframing. And to the people in your life who are like, I'm worried you're sleeping all the time. I'm, tell I'm talking to you. Don't say this to your grievers in your life. Remember, our bodies need rest. So we think about the cascading effect from the cognitive functioning to the sort of organ immune system functioning to the sort of sleep, rest, digest functioning. Grief is a whole body experience. Um, and I hope that this even reached one person who was starting to incorporate those negative grief beliefs, those thoughts that they should just snap out of it and get over it. And that it's has nothing to do. It also means checking in with your physician eating, even though you don't feel like eating most of you when you're grieving. I remember I did not thank God. My friends like signed up a meal train and brought food because my daughter would not have probably eaten. Cause I was like, did not want to eat, but the irony is good nutrition. So not junk food, but good nutrition and good sleep, of course, is good for us 365 days a year, all the time in our life. But it's especially important because we need to think about our body as basically being in a compromised state. So just like you drink extra vitamin C when you feel a cold coming on, it's like we need to treat our body as if we've, as if our bodies are grieving too, because they are. That was so helpful. And 
it's just something you don't really think about when you were talking about what someone, and, and because you've been through it, you know what you needed in that moment, yeah. what was helpful for you and your work with others. Um, so these are some really good tips. Um, definitely going to jot them down for any future use myself. Yeah. Um, quickly w- want to know a little bit about your thoughts on the five stages of grief. And do you feel like they resonate with you or not? Well, I'm going to share a link with you all. You can share with your listeners. I wrote, um, I wrote a piece actually last year, um, about the five stages of grief and, um, and my thoughts on it. Um, a couple of things, first of all, Elizabeth Kugler-Ross did not write them to talk about grief. So many people don't know that they were, she was talking about coming to terms with your own end of life. So right there, it kind of became mis assigned. And I know I've heard David Kessler, you were talking about that around earlier, um, talk about this too, is that both um, Kessler and um, Kubler-Ross's work, even when they did start writing and talking about it with grief, they were not trying to say that this was a linear, you go through this thing and then you're done and they go through and they were not making it a five point checklist. Um, However, in our back to our culture conversation, in our culture that loves everything to be really binary and really neat and tidy and really checklisty, I think we've all, and because it suits workplaces and capitalism and a lot of things, if I can just be like, well, we'll get through those five things and then we're going to be done and you're going to go back to normal and everything's going to be okay. So I think, again, at the cultural level, we all sort of tried to read the Cliff Notes version. That's what I wrote in this article. Like we tried to Cliff Notes our way through the five stages of grief um, concept. And then we just made some assumptions. So yes, we do, We go through shock for sure. That's part of what I was just talking about, that stress response from the body. Yes, we all have anger, anger, the unfairness, the injustice, the loss, the disconnection. We have those experiences, but they don't happen concurrently in a neat order. They, again, back to that member pig pen thing I was talking about, we kind of loop-de-loo our way through that. Um, uh, Dave, David Kessler has since written something about finding meaning as the sixth stage of grief. And I do think I still resist anything stage theory, any stage, that's just not in my narrative bones in my body, it's resisted. And, cause that's my favorite word. And I do think that there's some, Thing. That's his approach to this idea of creating meaning is sort of what I was getting at earlier in our conversation, which was doing the work of grief, honoring the pain, learning from it, ha- allowing it to shift your perspective on what matters about how you spend your time, about the relationships that you have, is in a way the finding meaning. It's not finding a silver lining and it's not being happy that it happened you know, like, again, I would still do anything to bring Eric back, you know, if I could. And if we can learn something about ourselves, our purpose in the world, how we show up and engage with others, that lessens the or creates more space back to that analogy, where between ourselves and the rest of the world. So that's a little bit of a long answer. I, I, I never bring up the stages of grief when I'm working with people one-on-one, like that is just not my go-to. It's more about the sort of, because it also makes it, 
a little too, again, checklisty and binary. And I think it ignores the physiological that we just talked about. It ignores the secondary losses, the financial impact of grief, all the different, the cultural, spiritual, existential issues many of us go through when we face grief. Um, so it's a tool. I think it's, and again, not to criticize them, I think it was mishandled and misunderstood by others, not necessarily their intention. And I think it though, it's, I think at the end of the day, whether it was their intention or even sort of the cultural writ large intention to make it in this neat little package, the consequence is real because we have all absorbed that five stages in some way as a grief belief. So then when we think we're done with shock and we've moved on to anger and then we feel shock again, we're like, well, I'm failing at the stages of grief. What's wrong with me? Right. Um, and that kind of pathologizing really concerns me. It's part of why I sort of um, disconnect from the that kind of uh, training in that way and, and to not use that practice. Yeah, I was definitely very curious to hear your perspective because, um, you know, that really has become this you know, the Standard, American, but American motto, you know, everybody knows it. Now it's like kind of like the five love languages too. Like we take something that's meant to help us understand and learn and we like make it so concrete that it's no longer usable anymore. We do not do nuance well in this <laughs> no. country. I mean, we really absolutely don't. We like everything to be on the binary. And in the article that I talk about, I invite people to think it's it's about why, why improv skills are required to grieve. That's kind of the title of the piece. And it's like, yes, and. Right. And it means that we really have to really improvise. Again, we've never been here before. We don't know what we're doing, but also it doesn't look that neat and that linear. And we have to that's true about all of our mental health, emotional work, just all about life in general is everything is much more nuanced and much more fluid and much more relational. And we try, which is part of the human brain's design is to categorize like this. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We couldn't like function in our days if we couldn't like put some things in categories and boxes. Otherwise we'd just be still wandering the plains or whatever we did in, you know, in our ancestor days. And we take it too far. And then when we take it too far and we binary everything or we make it stages or we make it neat, then so much of what is a normative experience becomes pathologized. And that is the harm. I always say grief is hard enough. It's the all the garbage that we've piled on top of grief that makes it so unbearable. And sometimes my work, as I said, I do one-on-one -on -one work with people. I do groups and workshops. And part of how I see my role, besides, you know, sort of this title of grief and empathy activist is I think we all have some inherent knowing. We have an inner wisdom about what we need to grieve, but we've been, which is hard. It's hard. And our body and everything about us wants to fight against that because it means facing our pain. Oh, it's so hard. But the hard part is all of these grief beliefs we've been talking about over the course of this conversation today is like garbage piled on top, this already difficult thing. And so my work, my role really is like peeling back all the garbage, both the messages that other people have said to you and messages that you're saying to yourself. So I will say, don't should all over yourself, right? So part of my work is like peeling back all of those garbage that get in the way of really back to where we started attending 
and trusting your own instincts. Like you probably know I really need to rest. My body's tired. The garbage on top of it is, but I'm a mom and I am an employee and I should, it's, that's not what people do. I should do this. I should do that. I, right. And that's the garbage. So I'm always kind of trying to detect that. I'm always like trying to detect the shoulds and help people make visible for themselves. Am I shooting on myself? And is that harmful or helpful? Because that's the question. Sometimes we have to do things that we should because we have to. Like, you know, we should be kind to strangers. We should, you know, there are things we do. We should pick up after ourselves in a restaurant. But sometimes all of these shoulds are actually getting in the way of what it is we actually need to and know how to do to care for ourselves. It's just all the garbage that makes it difficult. And that's that cultural crap that I'm constantly trying to peel away through everything I do from my podcast to my one-on-one work. We actually want to segue into a little bit more of of what you do and some of the um, services or offerings that you give to your clients. Um, I saw on your website about grief workshops. I'd love to know a little bit about what that looks like and uh, some of the ways you support your clients with grief. You might've already mentioned some of that, but we'd love to hear it again. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for that opportunity. You know, I've really been evolving over the few years that I've had reimagining grief um, to be responding to what is the unique, you know, perspective and support that I can bring. Cause there's lots of amazing people in this space. So I do one-on-one, I call them grief guide sessions. Cause again, I really think of myself as a guide and those are zoom one-on-one an hour with people helping them sort of unpack as we said that garbage and also just really showing up and holding space. I actually think I hope one of the gifts that I offer to people is that I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few people in their lives who can just hold space and bear witness to all there is. I also do offer workshops, which are sort of more to the sort of general public. I did one over the holidays. I'm looking at doing some group series, sort of psychoeducation group series. I'm playing around with that. I do a lot of work with companies. So I go in and do grief education, empathy, leadership, communications. I also help companies revisit and review how their bereavement policies do or don't align with their core company values because the cost to organizations is huge when they don't attend to grief. Um, So I sort of try to get at working with people at the individual level and then sort of at the corporate level. Um, And I also work with, as part of my work with individuals and with companies, I offer guided meditations. I started offering that last year because one of the things, as I said earlier, I was noticing is I was doing it in my one-on-one sessions anyway with people, but not everybody's ready for a one-on-one session. So I wanted to open it up. In fact, I'm going to be offering one just after this conversation today. Um, Because again, I want people to start to tune in and identify when grief and how we are, our thoughts and our emotions live in our bodies. So that's part of the services that I offer. Um, and I do writing. So I try to get do freelance writing and write for publications to help, again, change the narratives. And I have my podcast, which everybody can access for free. Um, Grief is a sneaky bitch. And I try to write daily. Um, and I use Instagram and all the other social media platforms, but to really share some of the daily, I call them daily invitations. Um, the daily wisdoms that I think are trying to, again, unpack all the garbage that we've learned. So uh, I'm looking to explore more direct individual and group services um, in the coming year. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm 
um, meeting the needs of individuals. So I've been trying to do a little surveying of people and to just see really what's neat. One of the thing, one of the workshops that'll probably be coming up soon it will be a six weeks group series, probably a small group series working on unpacking the shoulds of grief. Uh, that one's been requested a lot. So we'll probably be doing that um, soon in the near future. Those all sound incredible. Make sure you go check that out. And we'll ask um, in a few minutes uh, for your um, social media handles and how to access everything. Um, I did want to touch on um, maybe one more thing. I, I think um, we said so we'd circle back to this year in COVID, and I just want to kind of wrap up our conversation talking about that. Um, I'd like to know, Lisa, what have you noticed in the last year in terms of people's responses to grief and loss, um, in, obviously including the pandemic and COVID? Um, would just love to hear what you've noticed and what you think has been um, more, you know, typical or not so typical about the process of our grief this year? Yeah, boy, hasn't this year just been multiple layers of grief for people. So we're talking about sort of the non-death losses of community, you know, routine, dreams, you know, abilities. My daughter spent her senior year of high school on a Zoom, you know, she didn't get to have the sort of normal things, right? Job losses, of course people lost their homes, their belongings, et cetera. So we're talking about those layers of leave. And those are on top of maybe old grief people didn't attend to. And then we were collectively, and then of course, millions of people faced death losses in their family, sometimes tragic, painful, sometimes due to COVID or other illnesses, because people were still having cancer and heart attacks and diabetes and everything that that was happening. I think what was particularly unique this year, besides that we were all experiencing multiple layers of individual grief, we were, we were in some ways unplanned witnesses to so much grief at a collective level because we were watching it unfold in front of us on the news. And then there's a whole other layer of the collective grief that African-American and people of color in this country have faced their entire lives that we were, we, I'll say myself, white America was first bearing in some ways, first choosing to bear witness to, although we knew it was all going on and we were complicit in that. So then we were witnessing and all of these different layers of grief were so difficult in and of themselves. As we said, grief is hard one off. I think the unique challenge of this year was that part of what I, where we started was we lose in community and we need to grieve in community. And the irony of this year is we could not grieve in community. I had a guest on my show this season whose, you know, infant daughter died and they couldn't even have anybody come hug them or help them bury her or, you know, anything. So when we think about, which has a back to our stress response, which has a physiological, so people have not been able to discharge that pain. So I think that's the compounding layer that happened is that we couldn't hold, we had to witness, it's like we were forced with our eyes wide open to witness all this grief and loss, but we weren't able to then heal as community in the ways, even as dysfunctional as we are as a country, I think a lot of us have found smaller systems and ways to sort of grieve. And because we couldn't physically be in proximity to each other or travel or do anything or have proper funerals or burials, I think it's, I think we're, I think we haven't started grieving. 
I think that's the, I'm getting to the answer there, which is, I don't think a lot of us have started grieving. I think everybody has put everything on delight. We've been in survival instinct. Uh, one of the pieces I just wrote for SAP Global that says back to work, not so fast was like, people are going to come back to work and we're craving this routine, but everything that has just happened is going to be, it doesn't just disappear. It's going to catch up with us. On the flip side to bring my half glass full uh, side of myself to the conversation, I, I it's my absolute hope and belief that what this year did actually teach us is that and remind us is that everyone grieves, that grief needs to be held and witnessed and honored. It's it's messy. It needs a lot of different things that our systems, frankly, again, work systems in particular, but even family systems aren't set up to hold. So, so the, you know, I don't want to say rainbow. I'm not trying to sprinkle glitter on garbage here, but I think this maybe my hope is that this year reminded us or taught us something that we maybe knew instinctually, which is um, we have it, we have to hold space and have time to grieve and to allow that how you grieve and I grieve and Lauren grieves is very different and that we have to honor that and create space for people to do that in the different forms that I do. But this year has been, I've, I've been on the news a few times to talk about it because I think if we don't name all the different layers of things we went through this year as grief, and we're still grieving. We're gonna we're gonna harm especially our kids if we don't say just be happy now. You're back to work, or you're back to school, or you're got to go to your soccer practice, or you got to go to your thing. We have to let them and honor them and hold all that they grieved, and not try to rush them in or rush ourselves especially. But I think as adults, we are prone to model that for our kids and not rush everybody back into this binary of, well, you can't grieve and be grateful. You can't grieve and be happy. It's like, we can all be happy that I, I went and to a public outing today, first time in 15 months. It's weird and scary, but felt great. And there's still a lot of grief about all that made me realize I haven't, I hugged a person for the first time in 12 months. I hugged another human besides my daughter. So while that felt joyous and good and beautiful, and it felt healing, it also brought up, I didn't hug or touch another human being for 12 months. What did I lose? So I think as we navigate this, whatever version we're in now in this, you know, 15, 16 months in, I think we have to honor all the layers of grief and honor the fact that this grief is going to continue. And now we might actually have more systems and spaces to start to hold ourselves and hold others in their pain, but it's going to take intention and commitment. It's, isn't just going to happen. I, I, I do want to caution us to not all rush back into back to normal. We're not going back to normal and not just because of masks or proximity, but I mean, I think we are all fundamentally changed because of this last year, because of the visibility of the police brutality and violence because of the visibility of all of the deaths from COVID and because of the embodied experience that we all had being socially distant and isolated in our homes. That's just, that's fundamentally changed who we are. Now the question for all of us is what do we do with that? And how do we, how do we honor that? And how do we grow into that? That's, that's my curiosity. That's what's coming up for me in this, in my work as we, navigate into this next year.
Yeah, that's going to be the key is guiding everything we have experienced and learned during this time frame, which that sixth sixth stage of meaning, uh, you know, meeting and grief is that like we've learned a lot and changed in a lot of good ways, although with trauma and grief attached to it, but not pushing that to the side and ignoring all of the growth in order to get back to normal. Like you're saying, we need to to step even more into that and allow that to fully evolve. Um, But one of our guests from our last episode said something about how he suffers from depression, pretty severe depression. And in when the pandemic happened, um, he said the words of, it was like the whole world was depressed. And finally somebody understood what it felt like for him on a regular basis. And that collective experience hopefully will bring us together and make more meaning out of like what it's like to grieve in all of these different layers of like yeah. jobs and, and relationships. And I mean, that's empathy. Like when we can really start to understand the experience of another, I think what we need now is compassion, which is kind of taking the empathy to that action step, Um, right? So how do we do that? How do we show up in action for ourselves? How do we show up in action for others? How do we show up in action in the systems that we change or build or create or destroy and start over? So that's the invitation, I think, for all of us is how do we step into our compassionate selves? Yeah. And continue to honor that grieving process. Um, just because now we can get married when we say we wanted to get married or, you know, we can have funerals or baby showers or whatever it is, doesn't mean that all of that crap that happened to yeah. us isn't still like sitting and it's there. feeling like air. Yeah. It's there. We didn't, we didn't process it. We have to, um, I work, I had some guests on my podcast this season, the ladies from being here human, I'll give them a shout out. And they were great. And one of them used this expression, which I really love. She said, we have to metabolize our grief. And I just loved that imagery again, you know, I'm just a total metaphor junkie, but I just love that imagery. Like that garbage is all sitting there. If we just try to be like, okay, done. It's just dragging along with us. Right. So it's like, we have to metabolize it, take what it, what can serve us, what can heal us, what can help us, and then let go of the pieces that can't, but we can't just ignore it. We have to actually process it. And in that processing, hopefully we strengthen and grow and heal and all those things, but we can't just, you know, put the blinders on and and pretend it's not there anymore because it's just going to follow us to the next grief experience. Exactly. Yeah. We, we appreciate you so much for being here today. I am definitely going to listen to this episode when it comes out, which is something I don't do. And Ryan was like, how do you not do that? Well, <laughs> when I'm editing an episode, I usually am listening to it and I'm not going to edit this one. But also, Lisa, just so much of what you said today were just, I don't know, they just, they, they felt right and I don't know how to explain it other than that. It just made sense to me. And I feel like everyone needs to listen to this episode because we need to start talking about grief and we need to learn how to move through grief. Mm-hmm. And um, we just appreciate you being on today. Oh, such a pleasure. As you can tell, I get totally nerded out about this topic. I love it. So it's such an honor for me to be in conversation with the two of you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I love, we love that you nerd out because we like to nerd out too. It's great. Um, Where can our listeners find you on social media and what's your website? 
So my website is reimagininggrief.com. So you can head there to find all my services, my empathy cards, which we didn't talk about, even my podcast. Uh, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast is available on all your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, whatever. And I, as I said, I write daily um, at Reimagining Grief. I do write at Reimagining Grief on Instagram. I also um, have a Twitter account, Reimagine G. And I write on LinkedIn more so about the intersection of empathy and grief and the corporate space. So if you want to follow me, Lisa Kefoffer MSW on LinkedIn, you can um, check out my work there and um, I'll share some writing with you as well. Beautiful. Well, we will link all of that in our show notes so you guys can just easily find it, know the spelling of it and all of that. And we, again, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and just explore this topic of grief. And we're really excited to share this episode when it comes out in about two weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if you feel called to rate and review and share with the people in your life, you think would like us too. for more info on this episode, check out the show notes. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at dope SHT therapy pod and via email at dope SHT therapy pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for more episodes.